The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you have a volunteer organization that remains regionally aligned, but flexible in their focus, then in the event of a major disaster or attack, they are able to support the broader Estonian emergency response efforts, right? So they are flexible enough, but they're also structured enough to be able to rally teams in response to a crisis that could involve critical information infrastructure or some other cybersecurity concern. So cost savings associated with that, like that flexibility to leverage a volunteer force instead of having to have a full-time paid and ready force is really a massive cost savings when you think about it from just a strict human capital perspective. I'm Alvaro Marañón, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, November 30th, 2021. Cybersecurity is the responsibility of everyone. A cyber attack is no longer confined to the digital realm, and can have real impact upon various industries like food, gas, and medicine. But despite these challenges, there is an opportunity for a new whole of society approach to defend against the mounting cyber threats emanating from places like Russia, China, and North Korea. One approach advocates that the United States already has a non-governmental model for citizen involvement to adopt for cyberspace. The authors, Mark Gregorzewski, Barnett Coven, and Margaret Smith presented their paper at the 2021 Cybersecurity Law and Policy Scholars Conference. I sat down with two of the authors, Mark and Maggie, to discuss their paper titled Cyber Privateering, a New Model for Cyber Civic Engagement. We discussed the details around the Estonian model that inspired this paper, the role for civil air patrol, and the impact a local civil cyber organization can play in the community. It's the Law for Podcast, November 30th. Cyber privateering. So, Mark, what is the central argument of this research and what led you all to writing it? Sure. Thank you, Alvaro. I appreciate you uh, having us on and uh, really thrilled to, to reach the, your audience uh, with what Maggie and I think is a very important proposal. Uh, before I answer that question, I have to say that the views and opinions expressed are my own and don't necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any agency of the U.S. government. So, that said, for about two years now, I've been work, doing some thinking at Joint Special Operations University on cyberspace and irregular warfare. And that ultimately led me to think about the power of individuals and non-state actors in competition. It's led me to write a chapter on how Russia utilizes cyber criminals as a plausibly deniable tool in their operations. 
Uh, it also led me to write a paper this year on the Cyber Defense Review on how individuals could be empowered in an unconventional warfare campaign. And then again this year, I wrote a piece for the Modern Warfare Institute, which is how I met Maggie and uh, reconnected with our other co-author, Barnett Coven, on how both Russia and China have adopted an almost, I guess I'd call it an all-hands-on-deck approach by empowering cyber-capable citizens as a tool of power projection against the United States. So focusing on U.S. competitors has got me thinking if there could be an analogous role for private U.S. citizens. Uh, so as such, the tagline, cybersecurity is the responsibility of everyone, is a perfect way to encapsulate the central argument of the paper. That's to say that we're now completely digitally interdependent, meaning the actions of one individual can be the vulnerability that allows adversaries to target a soft spot and the U.S.'s digital infrastructure. Thank you for that. That makes complete sense, especially given the rise of technical dependency and the rise of patriotism, at least as a response to that. And also in your paper, you guys speak about how America's uh, hegemonic status has been chipped away in recent times, especially with taking advantage of loopholes in the legal systems and authorities governed cyberspace. Can you give us some examples of these tactical efforts you've encountered in your research? Yeah, absolutely. So America's adversaries are, are using cyberspace and the information environment to engage in asymmetric tactics and strategies that degrade the U.S.'s physical and cybersecurity. Countries like China, Iran, Russia, and North Korea all relentlessly chip away, and they take advantage of America's patchwork of legal parameters and authorities governing cyberspace and the ever-growing number of devices connected to the Internet. As such, cyber attacks, cyber intrusions, and exploitation breaches keep mounting. Uh, just to name a few over the past year or so, SolarWinds, Microsoft Exchange, JBS, and Colonial Pipeline. You know, the hits really keep on coming. So while cyber attacks against U.S. companies and the U.S. government are not new, the scale and frequency are increasing at an alarming rate. So in a networked world where every device is connected to another device, every device is a point of vulnerability, and the human that makes and then operates those devices is yet another loophole that is being exploited. In addition to taking advantage of loopholes in the legal system and authorities, I'd argue that this, that this explosion in risk may be mainly the result of U.S. technology companies focusing on getting their product out the door as rapidly as possible to quickly return a profit. This situation leaves many individual points of vulnerability for adversaries to exploit at little cost and relatively little effort. So thank you for that. That really embodies the think fast break approach often we've seen from Silicon Valley. And given these threats, the use of patriotic hackers like criminal syndicates and bots for hire, other nations are facing this threat, correct? Has another nation developed a different approach outside of a box type of approach to this issue and risk? Absolutely. Yeah, that is correct. This problem is pervasive. You know, proxy cyber actors have echoes in recent history. Uh, Estonia, Ukraine, Georgia, they all face similar threats to their cybersecurity from cyber proxies. As I'm sure many of your listeners already know, Estonia is one of the most digitally connected and dependent countries in the world. The digital connectivity works both as an opportunity for that young country and as a challenge. As in 2007, Estonians were targeted by Russian cyber proxies, or as they would call them, patriotic hackers. In our paper, we take the example of Estonia's Cyber Defense League, or the, or the CDL, which arose in response to those attacks, 
to show that a proposal like ours, the civil cyber defense, can be implemented with the right political will. Perfect. And before we get to the, the attack, did Estonia do anything in particular to boost this technical uh, literacy and, I guess, uh, use this leverage, this technical ability and skill set to improve the nation? Absolutely. So let me give you a little bit of background. Um, Estonia is drastically different than it was after the end of the Cold War. After being annexed by the Soviet Union at the end of World War II and remaining under Soviet control throughout the Cold War, Estonia continued to be dependent on Russia, which accounted for 92% of its international trade. So to make a decisive break with its Soviet past and to chart its own future, it embraced democracy and capitalism. It also incorporated technological solutions to leap past many other developing post-Soviet states. Uh, In 1994, a young neoliberal government was elected in Estonia, and following that election, Estonia produced its first draft of the Principles of Estonian Information Policy, which established IT as essential to solving the challenges facing society. So the Principles of Estonian Information Policy conceptualized how Estonian society as a whole can be transformed from a manufacturing heavy economy with little natural resources into a state focused on technology. Included in that push to digitize Estonia was the 1996 Tiger Leap program. Uh, The Tiger Leap program was a technology proficiency program which trained 61% of all Estonian teachers, introduced 61 new educational software programs, and sponsored 172 training and competition initiatives across Estonia. Most importantly, the Tiger Leap was not a one-off initiative. Instead, Estonia continued to push its population into the digital world with similar initiatives. Wow, that's, that's an incredible uh, forward-thinking initiative and proposal, similar to like a digital new, a new deal. And from here, all these efforts, were they successful and did they prove to be successful and did something happen that you challenged these uh, initiatives? So despite making many of these transformational changes, Estonia still struggles against the pull of Russia's orbit. The northern Estonia border is just over 90 miles from Russia's second largest city, St. Petersburg. Adding to the proximity problem of Estonia's nearly 1.3 million people, 24.8% identify as being of Russian descent. So because of their physical and cultural closeness, Russia does not respect Estonia's sovereignty. To offset Russian influence in the country, Estonia actively pursued membership in both the EU and NATO. And despite, or maybe because of, these memberships, Estonia became the target of a Russian cyber attack in 2007 in response to the Bronze Night protests. The protests were over the removal of the World War II Soviet-era statue, the Bronze Soldier of Tallinn, from from a prominent place in the Estonian capital. Hackers then took to cyberspace and attacked Estonia's critical and symbolic institutions in response to the statue's removal. The attacks were not attributed to the Russian government, but rather to the Russian patriotic hackers. In response to this digital incursion, Estonia developed their own Cyber Defense League. Wow. So it wasn't essentially a state-to-state attack, but it was essentially a group of people with very strong-held beliefs and decided to take the initiative on their own, somewhat like vigilantism. Yeah, that's what the Russian state would have you believe, but I I think they more or less look the other way. Of course. And Maggie, 
from here, the CDL, can you tell me a little bit more about the CDL and what do the governments leverage to help integrate this? Yeah, so I'm really excited. First off, thanks for having me here today. Um, it's really fun to talk about this with Mark. Before I begin, I wanted to say that these opinions and the ideas that I share today are mine and they are not representative of the Department of Defense, the United States Army, or the United States Military Academy. But I think the CDL is really tasked with a civilian cyber defense capability, and they have within Estonia regional cyber defense units. Um, so what that means is it's broken down by physical geographic regions, right? Which means that you're going to be working amongst people that you know. And these units, the CDUs, the cyber defense units, are really volunteer-led, and they're aligned to areas of local concern. So they're flexible in their commitment, so no permanent staffing, but they're also flexible in the focus of their efforts, meaning that if there is a local community concern related to cybersecurity, that this volunteer-led organization is able to flex and shift to address specific issues as they arise. Estonia was able to really leverage its organic hacking community's social capital and national pride. I mean, you consider, like Mark said, that they're 90 miles from the Russian border. They're also a very proud country, um, but they have this opportunity to protect their country against foreign aggression. And so this volunteer opportunity to assist and aid at the local and um, even broader than local regional levels uh, is really this volunteerism um, that really exhibits these notions of national pride and the community's ability to rally behind a skill set and uh, address technical problems that are associated with them being a very digitized country. That's that's an amazing approach to a problem that stemmed from, I guess, patriotic Russian hackers, and now you leverage your own your own social capital for good. Uh, that's amazing. And from here, uh, the Estonian CDL, you talked about their line of efforts. Could you identify some of their higher level focus points? Sure. This is an important point to make because even though it's an all-volunteer organization, and as we know just from personal experiences that we have with organizations here in our own um, country and and trying to organize volunteer efforts, it can be really complicated and really difficult to actually have a focus that people stay on because you can't exactly exert control over people who are donating their time to you. So there are really three main lines of efforts that the CDLs have um, come up with. And that is one is develop a network of cooperation that includes incident response capabilities. And uh, this is an important effort, obviously, because coordinated efforts are required because we know that anything that happens in cyberspace is not strictly defined by geographic boundaries. And then the next one is improving the security of critical infrastructure specifically critical information infrastructure. And so when we think about our own information infrastructure, when we think about the lines of communication that we have within the United States, and we think about how the Estonian approach to this is really creating a volunteer effort to ensure that those formal and informal lines of communication and those informal and formal information networks are secure. That's an effort of this volunteer organization. And then another one is one of the ones that is near and dear to my heart, which is promoting awareness, education, and training. And I think this stems from that approach that cybersecurity is really everybody's problem um, and goes back to the core argument of this paper that unless you have a citizenry that is aware of, in tune with, and 
educated enough to be able to take action, then these security vulnerabilities that exist just by virtue of being a digitized country, economy, and information domain, you really can't tackle those unless you have a citizenry that is educated enough to be able to address the problem and see it as their own problem as well. Thank you for that. And I guess this proactive model has been tremendous help in Estonia, but it also, I would imagine, brings some cost savings compared to the more centralized approaches we've seen in other countries. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think part of it is really related to that flexibility. When you have a volunteer organization that remains regionally aligned, but flexible in their focus, then in the event of a major disaster or attack, they are able to support the broader Estonian emergency response efforts, right? So they are flexible enough, but they're also structured enough to be able to rally teams in response to a crisis that could involve critical information infrastructure or some other cybersecurity concern. So cost savings associated with that, like that flexibility to leverage a volunteer force instead of having to have a full-time paid and ready force is really a massive cost savings when you think about it from just a strict human capital perspective. Again, like this creates this low financial cost. These members are not paid, and there is an important caveat here, where they are paid if they are mobilized. So there still is a mechanism to enable people to volunteer for this, because even if they get mobilized and it is a full-time requirement, they will get compensated for that full-time effort. So there's less of a concern about missing work or having to take time off from work to address potentially a national crisis. If you do have to do that and you are mobilized in, in response to a broader need, then you will be compensated for that. But they don't get paid unless mobilization happens. So that, again, is a flexible cost and pay method that enables cost savings over the long term and short term, to be honest. And then there's also these short incident response teams. And these are really, again, related to this decentralized organizational structure where the people who are volunteering to be part of the CDL are able to mobilize quickly because they're mobilized within their regions. It means that people do not have to travel long distances. It's going to be a local community that they know. So there's less apprehension of going and, and being a part of this. So it really provides the country with an on-demand volunteer service that has a different mission and a different focus than that of the militaries. This, yeah, it's a very different mindset to approaching this idea of cybersecurity's responsibility of everyone. And if the U.S. wanted to replicate, let's say, a similar civil cyber defense into our current nation, would they have anything to build upon or would this have to be a whole new program to start from scratch? So, Alvaro, you are totally correct. It's a very different mindset when it comes to national security because it really places this onus on every individual to have a stake in, in the country's national security. And I really like that mindset. And I would be very happy if we could adopt a similar mindset in our approach to cybersecurity so that we had a more robust cybersecurity ecosystem within the United States. And so our paper really revolves around this notion of a civil cyber defense and how we could potentially integrate it 
into our current national defense posture, as well as kind of figure out how it could nest with or augment the current and ongoing efforts of both our military and our civilian organizations and agencies within the federal government and state and local government. So there is a really cool model, and I'm so excited to talk about this because I, I just think it's such a neat and underappreciated organization, but we have, stemming all the way back to World War II, we have the Civil Air Patrol. And what's fascinating about the Civil Air Patrol is that it is a organization that is all volunteer. Its focus is on every single level of generation, meaning that it has a youth programming, it has a high school programming, and then it has ongoing and continuing programming going all the way up to um, senior citizens that are still involved in flying missions and, uh, and in some way contributing to the Civil Air Patrol effort. So the Civil Air Patrol was really founded and established in response to the threat of foreign invasion after the Pearl Harbor attacks. When you consider that planes give the advantage to the enemy to be able to attack the homeland, it makes sense that you could leverage the pilot population as well as the regular civilian population within the United States to help patrol or provide some sense of early warning or security to the coastal areas along the United States' coast. And so the interesting part about Civil Air Patrol is that over the years, the, the mission has evolved. And so currently, uh, the White House initiative to increase STEM education has been also integrated into Civil Air Patrol programming. Um, it's a congressionally funded organization that is linked to the Air Force budget. So it's nested under an official DOD budget. And that allows it to have oversight mechanisms by our civilian um, government in order to give you know specific left and right limits in terms of what they are able to do and where they should be leveraged. And it also allows for a synchronization of state efforts. And it really limits the scope of the group activity that would be detrimental or take away from the regular security. So given the Civil Air Patrol's model, I think there is a way to think through a civil cyber defense program that could be similar in nature, meaning nested under a military structure, which gives congressional oversight and allows for this real stark determination of left and right limits. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then 
weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Oh, that sounds great. And funny enough, my brother was actually in Civil Air Patrol in high school and I he loved it. it. And he was actually, we we're, were in the Northern Virginia area during September 11th. So he thought he was going to get called for something, but nothing. He yeah. was very excited and he loved it, the whole experience. So get, speaking of Civil Air Patrol, can you give me an example of what roles they've played from the civilian side in responding to emergency? You spoke about how the Estonian CDL would, but in the U.S. case, are there any instances to pull from? 
Definitely. And your brother is a good example. Uh, it, the Civil Air Patrol was mobilized in response to 9-11. And actually, the first civilian plane um, to be allowed into the airspace over Ground Zero was a Civil Air Patrol plane. And they actually provided the first high-resolution imagery of Ground Zero. And it was the only, for a long time, it was the only non-military aircraft that were allowed to fly in that restricted airspace. So they really have a 75-year history of providing emergency response efforts and support to local and federal agencies. So think about, um, I have a good friend, he is a Vietnam veteran and was a pilot after uh, being a Marine infantryman in uh, Vietnam. But he became a pilot and then once he got out, he continues to serve his country and community by flying rescue missions for the Colorado uh, Civil Air Patrol unit that he's been uh, Ure, Colorado. And so that's a really interesting example of how search and rescue missions are enabled by Civil Air Patrol and national crises. Think uh, natural disasters these days with our forest fires that are increasing in, in frequency, as well as flooding and uh, hurricane. Civil Air Patrol still maintains a large ability to respond to these sorts of disasters, whether they're man-made or natural. So they're very active in any types of emergency response. And I feel like that's that's great given how much talent the United States has that isn't being accessed in uh, the most efficient way as possible. And tons of people definitely want to help their community. So speaking about this uh, role of like a cyber volunteer group, how would you envision their role in the community and also in helping other organizations who are prepared for attacks? Yes. A really important question. Um, something that makes everybody squeamish is thinking about civilians playing a role in um, cybersecurity. Um, but in reality, we ask everybody to every day by updating their phones and taking efforts on their own to secure their own networks, changing default passwords. But for large sectors of the population, thinking about our older generations as well as our youth, training, education, and the resources that are required to really ensure that you protect yourself in cyberspace and your digital footprint are not readily available in many cases. And so I think one of the important roles that would be outlined for this civil cyber defense program would be community education. So similarly to how Estonia has their CDLs aligned into cyber defense units that are regionally located, an important role for this volunteer group would be helping organizations that are not prepared for attack. And when I say that, it's not like we need to help Goldman Sachs or your JP Morgan chases of the world. It's the smaller institutions, the small banks and, um, you know, the small school districts that are really the most vulnerable when you look at what organizations like ransomware organizations have been targeting. Um, Baltimore County, for example, was hit by a ransomware attack and they did not pay the ransom and they're still rebuilding that infrastructure. So there are ample opportunities for a volunteer organization that takes from the cybersecurity talent that is in the workforce to provide part-time temporary help, but also ability to help small organizations that can invest millions of dollars into their cybersecurity to really understand where their threats and vulnerabilities lie and how they can take mitigating steps to further protect their infrastructure, but also just the economic capital as well as kind of the information and data that should be secured because their customers really expect it. Um, so I think the education part and the ability to plus up and fill a gap that we have at the community level is a critical role that this uh, civil cyber defense will play. 
Exactly. And I feel that the importance of having that local community outreach is important, especially in the digital realm, given how misinformation and all these different, I guess it could be disinformation as well of also phishing, like it's just a bad literary products out there on cybersecurity hygiene. So people don't know who to trust. And if you have local voices, I feel like that's very powerful and local experts. Definitely. This is really the, uh, a really good opportunity to create you know, an all-volunteer force that would then be able to augment some of the really robust community organizations that are already pivotal and critical, kind of the pillars of our American community. So thinking like the Rotary Club or your Toastmasters Club, um, you can also think about it from this neighborhood watch perspective, Chamber of Commerce, you know, your veterans of foreign um, wars, your VFWs, those are areas where communities congregate and they are organizations within communities that people already trust. And so a CCD or a cyber civil cyber defense would be augmenting already robust and well-connected community organizations to really add a cybersecurity, both awareness, training, education, and workshops to help different segments of the population improve their own personal cybersecurity status, as well as that of the organizations that they run, work for, or um, potentially have to coordinate with. Uh, this would be something that could help out or be in conjunction with discussions with local law enforcement about community safety. I think it's really important that we start to think about socializing our community efforts with this notion that cybersecurity is really an element that nobody can ignore because every single person is not only a citizen, they're also a digital citizen because at some point you are going to be accessing a government or community-based service because you sign up for it by email or you know you have to make that request or you renew your license online. All of those types of things actually require um, internet access nowadays. And so it's really important to begin thinking about ourselves, not only as citizens, but also as digital citizens of that broader information environment. That's, that's a very important mindset, especially given the wide range of issues affecting communities. And given the, the role of this CDL, could we replicate it in the United States? And if we do, like, as you said, you can base it off the Civil Air Patrol, but would it simply just come down to cost and ensuring there's the right decentralized policies in place, you know, this right oversight, or is it just more than that? Before we even think about cost savings or the policies, uh, we have to think about trust. And so we are, I think, in an era or a time when um, we're pretty distrustful of, of things that we don't know, um, we're hesitant. And so I think community-oriented civil cyber defense units are the way to go in the sense that it will be rooted in a community. So you instantly have some aspect of trust associated with the fact that this is a local organization invested in local issues. And it's going to also require buy-in from private corporations. And that means allowing their persons and their employees to uh, volunteer. If you have a robust IT community within your organization or you have a robust cybersecurity group, 
then potentially incentivizing your employees to participate in community efforts to build up greater cybersecurity in your local community is going to have positive externalities for your own business, right? So from the private sector, it's really trying to get buy-in from corporations and seeing investment in the allowing of their or encouraging of their employees to participate in a civil cyber defense to lend their expertise that they have in the private sector to the local community is a way to build even more trust and to really incentivize the private sector to get involved. Um, And then within the public sector, it's really, and within the public in general, like-minded experts may not necessarily associate with each other across organizations. And so having a centralized organization like the Civil Cyber Defense to be the convening area for cybersecurity experts to then build trust around and address public and private cybersecurity issues in their local communities is a way to build further trust with the public and the individuals that may make use of either the products, the info products, or the education and training that this group can provide. And then when we think about how our government is structured, we really have a patchwork of regulations and legal, um, we have a really patchwork legal system when it comes to computer, uh, telephony, uh, I didn't never know if I say that word right, so we'll just go with that. Um, and then, like cybersecurity, those are really decentralized, and so it's this patchwork set of legal codes and, and regulations that people have to adhere to, and oftentimes navigating those is difficult, and that is part of the reason why we probably have a lot of, or our cyber criminals and our foreign adversaries have the ability to to execute some of their crimes is because of this patchwork nature. So having a stalwart, you know, volunteer organization that's able to spread across organizations and help and provide assistance for cybersecurity and raise awareness, I think, is another way that people are going to be able to build a more robust ecosystem at the community level, which then, again, creates these positive externalities. If you have secure communities, you have secure regions. If you have secure regions, you have secure states, and it goes on and upwards. And finally, military. A lot of people uh, enjoy serving in the military, and it's a really important point of service and point of pride for us in America. And so having another opportunity to serve your country if you're not um, eligible to serve in a military capacity, this is a way to volunteer and and use your cybersecurity skills uh, to enable your country to be more secure from a national standpoint. And so, Mark, I want to come back to you and talk about the importance of trust. So the Estonian government made an importance assessment regarding wetware vulnerabilities in 2010. And this build upon Maggie's point about psychological vulnerabilities and the role the government should play there. Could you speak a little bit more about these vulnerabilities and what the government described? Yeah, absolutely, Alvaro. The Estonian government recognized early on that it's really the wetware that is the weakest link in cybersecurity. You know, humans are, are constantly making mistakes, you know, clicking on phishing email links, uh, social media exploitation, delaying security updates on devices. And vulnerability exploitation within the chain of human decision-making can have grave impacts on a cybersecurity ecosystem. A compromise to one person's account can lead to follow-on compromises of other accounts. So the problems associated with being a digitally interconnected society become especially acute when social media accounts are hijacked or when personal data is breached. Consequently, actions to exploit wetware can result in information being weaponized in the form of a cyber attack or the launching of disinformation campaigns, among other things. 
So Mark, given this asymmetry power imbalance, the the enemy essentially has to get it right once and they can have a long list of indirect harms and damages they can use for other issues and projects. And when the U.S. is looking to create this type of civil volunteer group to respond to these types of threats, should they mainly have a cyber focus? Is that what Estonia did in their approach? Was it mainly we want all the IT experts? It was it more multidisciplinary? Good question. I particularly enjoy the Estonian model because you do not need to be directly tied into cyber to be involved in the Cyber Defense League. Uh, if you have a skill to add to the CDL, they will take you. I think this is important because not all cybersecurity experts can be teachers and not all teachers can be coders. You need to have different talents that when combined maximize the effectiveness of your outreach. Uh, so going off that point, a benefit of the Estonian model is that it gives individuals that may not be qualified or capable of serving in the armed forces an opportunity to serve their country. For instance, a cybersecurity expert with a physical disability might want to defend the nation out of a sense of patriotic duty, but traditional military qualifications may keep them from joining. So by opening the, the qualifications to traditionally excluded individuals, it allows many more individuals to contribute to the defense of the nation. So given that the CDL is a voluntary organization, it also allows individuals to join who are not looking to commit to full-time military service. The path to fulfilling a patriotic service in cyberspace via the Cyber Defense League allows for many more Estonians to contribute their service in defense of the country. That's a very proactive approach that leverages, like we previously said, a lot of untapped skills and assets and people who do really want to help and contribute to make a cause. It also offers, I would imagine, vet veterans an opportunity to cycle out of uniform service and other people willing to engage in this field. And I'll, a question for both of you. So for those who remain skeptical and say national defense, especially in this area, even in cyber, is a job for the military and there's no role for the civilians, what would you say? So that that's a tricky question that we've been you know, confronted with a couple of times now. I would answer this. You know, in the U.S., most of cyberspace is commercial and not militarized. It's our duty as citizens to keep this cyber commons pristine. The military, you know, serves to ward off nation-state cyber attacks, but it's up to us really to make sure that we keep up with with good cyber hygiene. In fact, I recently read that if we all just slightly increased our cyber hygiene, we could eliminate 80 to 90 percent of our existing cybersecurity issues. The mission of the military is not educating the, the population on cyber hygiene. Moreover, you know, we see a lot of societal cleavages in the information space being exploited by our adversaries. You know, we as Americans create those cleavages and our adversaries simply amplify them. We have to bridge our divides, not the military, but certainly dis and misinformation is making this more difficult. Therefore, you know, I think we should do something similar to Estonia by trying to integrate groups that feel outside of society. This might include focusing on helping local users understand the dangers of mis and disinformation and inoculating the public from untrustworthy sources of information and cyber risk. The fact that this information is being offered by someone they know, so if it's a local community person involved in the cyber defense unit, and trust may provide a gateway to discuss how adversaries are turning the U.S. information space on itself. At a minimum, 
uh, the CCD can equip misinformed but still patriotic citizens about how to be aware of their biases when engaging in the information space. I have uh, a lot of similar ideas to Mark about this, um, but this is something I marinate on quite regularly. And I think a lot of the way that we talk about cyberspace creates this notion that it is the domain of the military. We talk about cyber war, we talk about cyber attack, and uh, we use a lot of very offensive, kinetic-oriented language to discuss what happens in and through cyberspace, when in reality, I think that does a disservice because it almost allows us to think as average citizens that this is not our domain that we need to be concerned with. So I think that the public in general really needs to be part of the cyber defense ecosystem or the cybersecurity ecosystem in the United States, and that we need to start thinking about them, our individual citizens, as a necessary element in any integrated, coordinated national security, cybersecurity effort, uh, because our battlefields are no longer outside of our own physical geographic borders, but a lot of times those battlefields are here in the United States on infrastructure that is owned by us in the United States. And a lot, as Mark said, is privately owned. And so I think the more the citizens in this country and the more that our communities begin thinking about cyberspace as a place that they have ownership in and that that ownership then requires a responsibility of care that we can place cybersecurity in a, give it its proper place in kind of our, our public conscience, that it is something that everybody needs to play a role in. This is a step towards that. It's uh, obviously there would be clearly delineated left and right limits as to how the public would be involved. But the beginning point is to really create this socialization of cyberspace as a domain that we all need to play a role in protecting and safeguarding. Thank you both. And cybersecurity is definitely the responsibility of everyone. And hopefully we hope to see this program launch soon. The Lawford Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawford Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this week is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.